This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with Nick Rossi, I just want to talk to you about our sponsor, Axe Wax. Axe Wax makes a food-safe wax for your axe, your knives, your whatever, really, your boots, whatever you got. And if you go to axewax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off. So isn't that nice? It's a great product. They've been sponsoring the show for a while, and I appreciate Axe Wax. Go get yourself some Axe Wax. Without any further ado, I've been waiting for this interview for a long time. Nick Rossi is the gold standard of teaching in America, uh, blacksmithing, bladesmithing. He is the foundational pillar of the blacksmithing, the bladesmithing, uh, you know, explosion at the New England School of Metalwork. He's on his own, on his own, he's teaching there too. He just has a new video, it's the virtual bladesmithing educational video on his website, nickrossi.com. I've got a chance to see it, I loved it, and I'm so happy you're here. Nick, welcome aboard. Well, great to be here. It's a real pleasure. I, there, I don't think... I don't think there's one person who hasn't used... I know I've been saying your name for years. I actually learned about you probably in the early, like, 2010-ish, 2009-ish. I was, at the, I was at the Center for Metal Arts, one of the fabricators there, and I was at the last... I believe I was at the last time Uri Hoffi was in the States. And Mike Cataldo, or Matt Paul... We're talking about you is the beginning of Facebook and they were talking about you and it, you have made such a huge impact on the on the, the work of so many great bladesmiths. It's just a really it's an honor to have you here. Well, you know, th- thanks a lot. And, uh, and I think that uh, I, I was kind of uh, lucky to uh, to stumble upon the uh, the New England School of Metalwork uh, kind of early. And, you know, I mean, as, as I've said a lot in, you know, in other other uh, other podcasts and, you know, pretty much to anyone who will who will listen, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot going on like in the early to mid 2000s as far as bladesmith's education and i kind of like i kind of saw that as maybe having a future you know so so i you know i i just feel kind of kind of blessed to have stumbled upon that early why do you think that is you know i was thinking about it before we you came on and i was actually thinking about it because i started at the center for metal arts probably our uh, fine architectural metal center of metal arts you know 2005 and there were there were classes being taught there but not a lot blacksmithing and bladesmithing it's relatively new the concept of teaching it i mean it's i mean back in the day obviously it was a trade so it's not like today you go for a weekend to take a plumbing class you know bladesmithing and blacksmithing is a little bit more um something that a hobbyist can do and i just wonder why it's taken so long for it to become as popular as it is well, you know, I, I think that uh, a lot of that came about during uh, America's bicentennial, and that really uh, set a fire under a lot of people to kind of rediscover our kind of, you know, uh, you know, front frontier roots and kind of focusing on traditional skills. And, and that was that really like kind of raised a group of, of people who were kind of kind of fell in love with, with blacksmithing. And at that point, there were still some old codgers alive that that were professional blacksmiths and that, that were, you know, professional craftspeople who work in, in, in industry. And in uh, those 
early instructors were were able to kind of get that firsthand information. And a lot of those guys are still are still teaching today. A lot of those guys who are influenced by the you know real OG blacksmiths, you know, you can still take take classes from. And those guys are really where I draw most of my uh, most of my inspiration. I mean, they are they are the original educators. Yeah, I, I was reading something that you had written. I don't know if it was on your website or something like that. And you were talking a lot about uh, Peter Ross and how Peter Ross is, how important he was to you in regards to your, your kind of, I feel like your history, you had changed over from, you know, knife making almost to this, your work now especially has such a huge blacksmithing element. And just reading about Nick, about uh, Peter Ross, Peter Ross, it was such a it was such an interesting and then I ended up going down the the Peter Ross rabbit hole on on YouTube. I mean, he really is. I mean, we talk about who's the, you know, who what blacksmiths were on TV. I mean, he was the one who was on PBS doing these rest on these rest doing these little segments on restoration shows. I mean, he really was quite a substantial influence. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a, a lot of those uh, 18th century Smiths, you know, uh, uh, Dick, Dick Sargent, uh, not the guy from uh, from uh, Bewitched, right. but the, uh, the the other Dick Sargent, you know, like in uh, Jonathan Nedbor and Peter, you know, they, they really kind of laid those, uh, you know, laid, laid that foundation for for all of us. So, you know, I I feel I feel really just generally humbled, uh, you know, kind of like you know, standing standing on their shoulders. So. Well, speaking of standing on your shoulders, I was watching this amazing video that I'm going to put in the show notes. It was a Peter Ross. Uh, it was a Peter Ross video where it was the box. I would think it was the box joint pliers. Is that right? Yeah. It was yep. a, he, he, and he and the funniest part was I'm watching it, and it is amazing because there's no rivets, so basically he punches a hole in one of the you know if it were a pair of tongs at one of the sides, and then he makes it square, and then he fits the other you know the other part of the pliers in, and then and it, it's amazing to watch and just like there's just no way this is gonna work, and you watch it and watch it and watch it, and all of a sudden I hear, oh, you ruined it, and it was you fooling around in the background because it was a uh, you know a, a New England School of Metalwork video. And it was funny because it was just like, it was a serious moment and you had this like comedic part of just like, ah, oh, he's ruined it now. And obviously he didn't. I mean, it was just an incredible piece. I actually sent that video around to, to some blacksmith friends of mine saying, we got to make these. These are unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It, it was very, very cool. And uh, yes, yeah, so I do enjoy a, a good a good joke every now and again. Um, you know, and, and that 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 particular class was cool because Peter basically showed you how to do it and and everyone in the class like he's just like okay so you're just going to ruin parts for the rest of the day and you know it's probably two solid days of just making absolute junk like stuff that'll that'll never work you know to get to that point where you could make one that would so you know just not being so precious about about each each piece and and having to you know drag it out to go, to a, a conclusion and just throw it away and start a new one. That that's a really good lesson that I also uh, drew drew from that. I he became something I was I you know I'd known about him and I know that he was involved with the Banna and I know that he was involved uh, with other organizations and obviously there's so many segments that he's been on in, on PBS to for restorations. I went to his website and I found a quote from him and I thought it was very interesting. He says, "My interest in historic ironwork is based on an era." and culture in which handmade was the primary method of industrial production. 
In this context, no extra attention is given to accentuate handmade qualities. No value added because of the uniqueness. Everything was unique. No reward for irregularity except increased speed. When handmade things were inherently nothing special, they have to prove themselves on merit. And it was really a a great quote because it was really about the concept of like, you know, it's not about the embellishments. It's about the proficiency that you're doing it. And 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 I see that in your work especially. Yeah, it's uh it's simple simple yet complex. There's a lot there's a lot there and if you strip away sort of those uh those the, those elements to to the, the the basic skills that you need to get a piece done, I think that really shows in the final product. I want to just I want to just head back a little bit. I and I need to step back a little bit and we'll come back to this in a second. When you were 15 years old, you were you you're, you're not from Maine originally from Connecticut. You moved right. to you move, your family moves to Maine. You're in the uh, free, uh, the the Freeport area, Freeport area, um, and you walk into the Casco Bay Cutlery. Yeah, this is a small small knife shop. You know, uh, husband and wife, the Dillmans. How do you get involved with them? Well, I was pretty lucky that I I knew someone who knew them, and they uh, they went to they they had a son that went to school with the Dillman son, Jason, and luckily they just happened to to mention to this this lady, you know, like, well, we uh, we're looking for someone to uh, to to work here. You know, to work here as as part time as a part time position. You know, do you know anyone who's like interested in knives? And and she knew that I was like I have been knife knife obsessed my whole life. So she she just well, she was like, well, I do know this one guy, and that's kind of how I got the uh, I got the interview, and uh, I I you know managed to not totally spaz out being being 15 and made a good impression so that's kind of how it how it started there but i was like i was more of a uh a customer and well i didn't have any money so i just drooled and i saw like my first expensive knives there and so uh so that was that was kind of how it all worked out did you ever is that was that your first job i i spent uh, one summer working for a summer camp, which I desperately hated. Uh, terrible job, <laughs> terrible. Really didn't enjoy myself, and so it was my second job, technically. So, I'm I'm a real lucky duck that that was my my second job as a teenager. What was wrong with the summer camp? You know, it just it just wasn't my thing. I I, I you know I I probably actually would enjoy it more now than I did then, but you know I was just a a, a spazoid four, fourteen year old kid, so it, it it was probably me. I would say it's probably me. Wow, that surprises me because especially now now that you've you know you've been a teacher for so long and you've been dealing with people you know of all different skills and sizes and and shapes and and people, I, it is surprising to me that your first job you hated is working at a summer camp. Were you a counselor or something? I was I was a counselor uh, assistant, a sort of counselor in in training, and and I, and really, I, I think that my my dislike of that is just that my uh, my 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 brain hadn't fully formed together yet. Right. Yeah. Your age, the age, fourteen fourteen's tough to have to like tell your kids what to do. Yeah. I would yeah. imagine. So, at Cos- Casco Bay Cutlery, they're teaching you how to sell. Sell, or, or I mean, are you? 
a salesman right off the shoot or you just, I mean, how does, what does your job entail when you get there? Well, I, I just thought that I was going to be opening boxes and, uh, you know, doing paperwork, cataloging stuff. And, uh, and it didn't really work out that way. They sort of threw me behind the counter on, on the first day and said, uh, so, you know, show people, show people knives. Hmm. So customer service became like right off the bat how to talk to people and and uh, engaging in people and I can imagine that selling your selling knives to people was a very you know getting those sales was a very exciting experience. Yeah, absolutely, and obviously it's it's it was really a skill that has served me well in in my in my career. Um, I've I've always worked in sales to 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 some degree, and you know that that really. Uh, was very was was very formative. Just knowing how to talk to people and letting your passion for the product uh, kind of drive your sales techniques. That right. was really easy because it's it's easy to sell stuff that you really love and care about. Uh, I one of my my other jobs is I worked uh, in industrial sales. I sold uh, aluminum extrusion handling equipment which is kind of tough to get super excited about. I can get super yeah. excited about a lot of things and I was able to do it, but it, it took, it took some, it, it not nearly as fun to sell as my own knives or someone else's knives. I would think that, that, that I can, I'm, you know, just kind of like listening to you. Had, you had a great interview on with at a, a Mark of the maker. And I just, I would imagine it, it seemed to me like this job was very formative for you because because of what you do now, it is very performative. It is very there's. And when I say sales, I mean like you are trying to. Sales isn't just like getting the sale. It's engaging people. It's making feel people feel comfortable. It's making people understand what they're doing. It's making people kind of like feel comfortable in what they're gonna, about to do. So I would imagine that there's a degree of confidence you gain in this position to talk to people and basically have have an idea of exact, knowing what you're doing and being able to kind of pull them in to be comfortable with you and to make the sale. I'm convinced that this job, I mean, this is my own opinion. I'm convinced that this job really is what sets you apart in terms of, you know, your history as a teacher. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I say this again, quite a bit, but uh, dealing with people that use knives professionally, that was the biggest thing. Getting that feedback from people who use knives every day and they really had to work uh, that, 100% drives everything I do involved with knife making. Do you think that being involved with knife sales and seeing all these different chef knives and different hunting knives and whatever, all these tactical knives and Swiss Army knives, do you think having a real understanding, because it is for a 15-year-old, it's a much more broad education to to fall into this. I mean, it seems it's not just a random job. It's just like this beginning stage to your career. I would imagine you've never made a knife before, and you have this very hands-on experience with this stuff. I can't imagine that it not be helpful to you. Uh, yeah, and that was definitely not lost on me at the time. I was like, this is a huge opportunity. Don't screw this up. And uh, at the time, I really only cared about tactical folding knives. That was that was right. what got me into knives. And in that exposure to different types of knives, like historical knives, that really you know made made a big difference. Now, one of the one of the influences that your early influences um, 
was a guy by the name of Mud Sharrigan. Yeah. Mud, Sher- Mud Sharrigan, I've heard. You know, why don't you tell me about Mud? Mud is is a wonderful human being, and he is a legend in the world of Maine craftspeople. He uh, he lives in, uh, in, in Woolwich, Maine. And he became famous for making rigging knives uh, for people who work on on tall ships. And Mud uh, was, is a boat builder, uh, early hot rodder, uh, you know, a merchant marine, kind of this jack of all trades. Awesome carpenter, b- built houses, and but this uh, this whole rigging knife thing just took off for him. And for 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 people that are into traditional wooden boats, you have to have a mud rigger. You absolutely have to have it. You, you, it, it, there's uh there, there's there's no option there so yeah you, you have to find a way to get one and he's he's in his mid 90s now and he's still he's still churning out m- mud riggers how how did you end up meeting him well we used to sell his knives and and he would he would come in and he was the first knife maker i ever really talked to and i was like well i'm thinking about making knives and he's like well you totally should and I asked him about steels, and he told me which ones I should use, which ones I shouldn't, and gave me a lot of really good advice. And and I never actually had a, a direct lesson with him. I would I got I got a grizzly belt sander. Uh, my 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 buddy Herb that I also worked with at the school, who who I've I've taught with quite quite a bit. Uh, he he kind of talked me into a, a grizzly, and. And I would I would do some stuff on my grizzly, and I'd, I'd bring it back into the store, and Mud would come in, and he'd look at it and tell me, you know, do this or do that, don't don't do this, and I I'd, I'd bring something else back to him. So that that was kind of how it worked out. Hmm. Because it's interesting because I mean when I, his knives especially, I don't. Could you can you explain to me what the Warncliffe is for? The Warncliffe is the is the blade style. Is that have to do with the ri- ri- the rigging of uh, rigging knives? Yeah, yeah. There's no tips. You don't you, you don't want to tip on a boat knife uh, for for safety reasons. You you may you you may have to uh, cut a rope away from a person. The chances of you stabbing yourself uh, when you're swaying around on the high seas become uh, poking yourself becomes a lot a lot more dire and the the legend goes that they would actually when you went on a boat off to off off to sea they would break the point off of all your knives because a knife that has a point is much more deadly if you hmm. you know if you kind of got ornery you're less right. likely to 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 kill your your uh, your 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 shipmate so that that's the that that's the idea of those but the shape is the, the shape of a Warncliffe normally where is the spine kind of tapers down and then the blade is almost straight. It's kind of the opposite it's the opposite shape of profile shape of like a hunter knife, hunting knife. Yeah. And I just always wondered why why if there was something to be said about that. Well, you also use these knives uh you you baton them to cut through big rope. So I think that there's there's an, I don't I don't really know a whole lot about uh tall, tall ships uh, just right. just sort of you know minorly but you well, you, you beat on them so. yeah 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 you you, <laughs> you 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 beat on them and uh, and I I think that the shape kind of kind of helps deliver that force through the rope is the idea huh well I, when I looked at Mud's knives I see when I look at your knives now especially. I see similarities, not similarities, but I see like echoings, like tiny echoings um, 
from like uh, like there's a an echo is the right word like when i see his handles i see like a, their handles are a little bit on the bigger side his handles are on the bigger side they're a little bit more robust and i and i wonder how much of an influence he had on your work yeah today. yeah a hundred percent they're they're kind of a weird handmade industrial sort of sort of look like it's like a purpose built industrial tool that just happens to be handmade so hmm. that that combination of really of of brute function you know and they, there's you know with, with with mud's knives there's not really a lot of of uh of aesthetic consideration as far as the rigging knives go though i mean mud, mud mud's a pretty versatile maker he, he makes a lot of a lot of really beautiful stuff too uh but that that real real pointed functional look is what is what really appealed to me and like it's the same thing when i was getting into tactical knives like like or like a ernest emerson knife uh his, his early fixed blades i looked at those and they 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 look like just in industrial things that are still handmade so that 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 combination just appeals to me there's something about it yeah there is something there's something about the i think it's to me it was almost about the girth of the knife yeah because like when i look at your your knives especially your outdoor knives the handles have a little bit more girth as for like a, a bigger handed person um as opposed to like a like let's just say like a victorinox swiss army knife where it's a little bit on the slender side i i i did notice i do notice that with with a lot of your knives you have a little bit more swell on the handle and i just as soon as i looked up you know muds muds knives i'm like oh maybe there is a connection there yeah yeah absolutely and that 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 all comes down to you don't want the knife twisting in your hand so if you right. make the the grips a little flatter and a little wider uh they're much less likely to 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 have that sort of torsion effect so before you ended up meeting Derek Laser, when did you start making knives? Well, I met Herb Cattell, who's a, a great knife maker. He's a professional welder at uh, at uh, Bath Ironworks now. I, I Herbert was also working at the store in Freeport, and he had started on his journey towards towards knife making. He'd, he'd spend some time with uh, Tim Zawada, and he was he was getting started. He had a grinder. Which is pretty wild, uh, and he had a forge, which was pretty awesome. So he he had me over just to to give it a try to see if I liked it, and and uh, and I just beat the tar out of his poor anvil. I just I I, I did not I've not, I did not take to this naturally. So I really just just ding the ding the heck out of his anvil, and he was pretty cool about it. And at that point, I decided that I didn't want to do any forging at all. I just want to make stock removal knives. I was like, I hate this stuff. So, right. so that that was where I, I I started, and it was it was Herb who who gave me that gave me that chance, and I I just never stopped hanging out. Hmm, that's amazing. And and do you think? I mean, once you found out, I mean, I know that I I I was I was surprised to hear that New England School of Metalwork was as you know, relatively new as it is. I mean, when I say new, I mean, when did it start in the, in their mid two thousands or, uh, well, it was, it was 2000. It, it, it opened its doors. Uh, I, I would say 2003, 2004 was like the first, the first years of like full time classes. Huh. And, and when you, in, and it, was it close to where you lived or? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was actually Herb who first heard about it and he drove right over there and said, well, gee, have you ever thought, he said to Derek, it's like, well, have you ever thought about doing a knife making class? And that was a pretty niche thing back then. Uh, y y there, there really, 
were only a few organizations in the country. There were only a few hammerins. There were there were only a couple schools that 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 touched on knife making at all. But Derek is is kind of like a blacksmith that enjoys knife making, and I'm kind of a knife maker that 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 enjoys blacksmithing. So Derek's like, well, maybe we should give it a try. So Herb was actually the first instructor that the school had, and then after that, it was uh, Bill Fiorini. So those were the first two knife making classes. And then uh, – and Herb told me about this and instantly I just started stalking Derek, uh, going to the school all the time, just asking if I could help out. And uh, and Herb said, well, you know, it might be cool if we had Nick come in and like co-teach a class and and I did and it worked out. How did did he get – how did he have the wherewithal to start the school? Well, that that's kind of an interesting story. So it's it's sort of uh, the 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 sister company to uh, Maine Oxy, which is a major uh, welding supply and gas supplier in Maine. And the then owner Bruce Albiston uh, saw the the writing on the wall that they had all these people that they were selling welders to that wanted welding lessons, that wanted just simple how to use a welder, and and so he said, "We're going to start a school." And we're going to do welding lessons. And then he knew a blacksmith uh, locally, and, and that and that and that really appealed to him. And so, without even considering like what that what what it meant, he said, "And we're going to do blacksmithing classes, like completely randomly." Huh. And so, luckily, uh, they managed to find Derek, who uh, was working at uh, Win- Winthrop High School, uh, a, you know, a, a, a high school that, that was closer in, in, in industrial arts. And uh, they were kind of phasing out their industrial arts programs, as was like the times, you know, that, that around that period, all these programs were being phased out. And so they snapped them up at just the right time. So, you know, Derek's a great welder, awesome blacksmith. And, and they basically got, you know, the right guy for the job right off the bat. So, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fortuitous. So the organization started this company. Why do you think Maine Oxy got involved? If you don't mind me asking. I just oh. out of curiosity because it's like I know, you know, it, it is fascinating to find out where these things come from. Why do you think they got involved? It, it was just it was just filling a need, just filling a need for for, for hmm. welding lessons. And uh, you know, half of the curriculum of the New England School of Metalwork is is welding is is welding uh, lessons is uh, teaching people how to go into industry. Uh, and and become professional welders. So that's that that's really uh, the 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 super profitable part of of the New England School of Metalwork. And uh, and and right now, yeah, as as we all know, uh, there's this huge need for welders in basically every industry that requires welding. And and it's a great career. Uh, it's a great a great uh, a great craft to be involved in. And they're they're just doing. They're 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 doing big big guns big guns with the welding program. Are they connected with unions? They are connected with uh, every employer, at least in the state of Maine, in most of New Hampshire, and the employees just come to them. Uh, the, the the employers just come to them looking for people. Really? So so I I would say their flagship program is a twelve week three hundred and sixty hour program, and I would say I think it's like 80% of people who take that have jobs before the end of the class. Uh so oh my so God. it's 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 out of control. It's uh, it's absolutely out of control. That's amazing. You know, that's the thing about, you know, I I know I used to work uh, at a metal shop when it was there was it was a non-union shop, but we dealt with a lot of union guys and I was talking to a lot of union guys 
And there, in my town, there's actually the Steamfitters Union School. And it is interesting how welding class, how there is such a need for certified welders and welders. And I didn't realize, I, you know, it didn't even dawn, being in the blacksmithing and bladesmithing community, you don't even, it doesn't even dawn on you that the New England School of Metalwork is such a high volume welding place. When I was talking to, uh, uh, Emiliano Carrillo and he was we were talking about uh, on this podcast we were talking about when he became the battle champ two time battle I called him two time battle champ yeah uh, you know you were the judge oh yeah yeah I w- when he got the checks for Maine Oxy all I could think of is this is amazing that their Maine Oxy is involved with the New England School of Metalwork but I it didn't had no idea that it was such a heavy welding school yeah, yeah, and and you know it's it's uh, the New England School of Metalwork is 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 an independent five hundred one c three organization now, uh, but it, it's it's sort of an interconnected thing, and and you know Mainoxy is really uh, very generous with their 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 money, and uh, and and they they see the value in it. Of course, but I would imagine so. So they have this. They have the welding school because obviously people are coming in. They want to learn how to weld. They're going to fill the need. They're going to have a welding school, and then they have Derek come in to offer these other classes. I would imagine that main main oxy is going to say, "Okay, we're going to welding school, but maybe we'll add in these kind of like these knife making blacksmithing classes." Do you? Th- how did it change New England School of Metalwork? Because it seems as though. It's now known for you're now it's associated with the American Bladesman Society. It's you know these are accredited classes. If you take a, a, a you know a bladesmithing class from the from the um, New England School of Metalwork, it's an accredited to the ABS. How do you think it's changed the school in terms of you know are people coming in for more welding classes? Are they coming in for knife making, blademithing, blacksmithing classes? Well, well, welding is always going to be there. That is just right. in in the. The, the dollar per hour education wise that you can get in, in a welding setting is much higher than you can get in, in a blacksmithing bla- bladesmithing because n- nobody nobody needs a blacksmithing and bladesmithing class really. Uh, right. people, people need to get a job that will get them health insurance and uh, you know a, a, a great wage in, in, in a future. So, so that's way more in demand. so that, that's, that's really the bread and butter. And, uh, and the, the, uh, the, the, the blacksmithing and bladesmithing part of it, that was sort of an experiment that took a fair amount of time to, to get up and running. And we were sort of poised at, at the, the, the sort of the, the start of all the interest of this, you know, uh, like, uh, the Alex Steele YouTube videos and, and Forged and Fire, we had a whole program set up with those topics ready to go when when the sort of wave just 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 hit the industry so we were kind of lucky to be poised at at exactly the right time right how did you feel starting out as a teacher because i mean it is hard i mean it is it is demanding teaching and it is how did you how do you feel in the beginning stages when you just get this idea derek says to you okay why don't you guys teach a class you and herb teach a class how did it change how did it change who you are over time? I mean, in the beginning, you must have been a little bit on the nervous side, right? Well, it, it was it was horrible. It was really, really stressful. <laughs> it was really, really stressful. And and the 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 great thing about those days is there was nothing to compare yourself to because no one else was teaching knife making classes <laughs> except for uh, the ABS schools 
down south. And, right. and that and, was and there's no internet. There's no, no. Like, Facebook, so people can't tell you what know what you're doing right or wrong. At the no, time. no, no, no. And we would and we would go to to Ashokan. That that was our big uh, exposure to real life professional famous knife makers. And the 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 level of of instruction that they would give you in in a demo setting set a great precedent for us in how we wanted to teach classes. Uh, right. Kevin Cash and Tim Zawada, those guys, Dan Moragny, they did such a good job getting ideas across that we just kind of followed that that template. But there was a lot of a lot of trial and error in 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 coming up with. Things that worked, uh, you know, I, I don't have I'm not I'm not a professional teacher. I don't have a teaching background. So it it it, it kind of uh, it, it was trial and error. But th- th- that's the interesting thing about this, because back in the day when I was at the Center for Mental Arts, we had so many different teachers coming through and these guys weren't professional teachers either. You know, and, and it was it was interesting as I was I had to be the, when I was working there, I was the T.A. for everybody. So you got to see different teaching styles. And in your mind, I mean, I went to college, I went to high school. I, you know, I knew what you know, I in my mind, the teachers that worked for me, are the ones that I could identify with or I felt comfortable with them or I could or they were engaging. So at the same time, I mean, you do get to see different teaching styles and you do see people that either engage you or don't engage you. I would imagine for you, because there isn't, there isn't, I mean, I remember taking, seeing all these different blacks and at, at, a time, at the time, you know, they were just get, they had, you know, different people coming in who didn't have a whole lot of experience teaching. I don't think that, I mean, it isn't like, let's just say for argument's sake, karate or something like that, or martial arts, you have, you know, you have hundreds and hundreds of years of thousands of years probably of of learning to teach as in now a lot of times especially now where there's a demand for people who want to learn teachers are plucked out of you know if you're proficient in something hey would you mind teaching me without having the ability to learn how to teach which is really really hard yeah yeah absolutely and it as as we know just because you're a great knife maker does not make you a good instructor it, the, the two are not connected at all, uh, and and that's 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 a real consideration, huge consideration, huge consideration because you can see it. And actually, and I wanted to talk to you about this. I'm going to fast forward real quick, and I'm going to head back. But in your new video, the virtual bladesmithing educational video at nickrossiknives.com, it's an hour long class. It is. I was. St- stupefied is the wrong word and I wasn't surprised I mean I was psyched but not surprised your explanations for things for forging way how to straighten a knife the reason why you make you know your chef knife uh, have a 90 degree from the tang the, the heel comes down how you drag the heel back how you move the 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 tang up so you can get into the heel your explanations were of the caliber of the teacher that you are Whereas you explain things, one of the things I've always hated um, is when, you know, when somebody says, what do I do now? And somebody says, just hit it. I, I, I really, for me, blacksmithing for me has become almost like a philosophy. Now I'm 47. I'm like a little bit more, uh, I'm looking more for enlightenment than anything else. And blacksmithing is becoming one of those things where it's this discipline that you have to have a firm understanding of what you're doing before you put the steel in the fire. And having your tools ready to go and you know what procedures and time is on, not on your side and you really have to be very efficient with everything. It's become a mindset. And when I watched your video, I felt this complete understanding and giving that understanding to the viewer. 
Yeah, and th- thank you. And and the uh, the thing that really drove the video is I was I was teaching this class in person, and there's a lot of you, you you've seen it. It's it's pretty densely packed. There's a lot of of nuggets and bits of information between the steps, and. I felt bad that I was telling people all this stuff, and I know that there was no way that they could absorb all of it in an eight-hour demo. There's just no way to process all of that. And I was like, well, and some of this stuff is pretty important. So the, the, the point of the video is I was thinking, what if people could just play this again? What if right. they could just, just kind of go through it a few times and have some of these these the, these little nuggets sink in a little bit more? Because I I had you know, like 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 you I I had the uh, the ability to see classes over and over and over again that like the same classes by 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 the by, by the same instructors and they were just as engaging the third time or the fifth time I was still picking up new stuff that I just you know, I was zoning out or whatever the last time that they were teaching and and I was like wow well, you know what if you could just put this on on repeat and you, you really really absorb it. That's the one thing. I mean, it's very, very. It's a, it's an excellent delivery system for information. And one of the things that you know, back in the day when uh, you know the Max Ed Mac, who was the original owner of yeah. Fine Art of Ed Mac and Rhoda Mac were were my boss. When I first started at there, and they had me, I was originally just I was just a welder, and then I had no, I stumbled onto blades blacksmithing. I had no idea. I just to me it was at the time, you know, it was to me it was you know anvils were for Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. I really didn't, it didn't really have any. I was a welder, and I could weld you know stuff and stuff like that. And they had me take the classes, and I just the after the the first class I'm watching, and then the second class I'm noticing all the students. They're standing there with their coffee and their car pants and they're putting their hands on their waist and they're nodding yes. Like they see these things. And after taking the same class three times or teaching it this third time, I, there were these little moments, these tiny moments that if you miss it, you're out. It's just you can't get to that finished state that you want to get to the next step. So what I started to do was I had to take – draw. I had to draw it because I was just like – I know these guys aren't watching because I didn't watch the first time. I didn't really understand what was happening. And it's the one of the things that that's why I started doing all these notes and, and it made it easier for me to kind of understand what was happening. When I watch your video and I see the nine steps to forging out this chef knife, you, you, uh, you make it so compact and so concise that it, you don't need to take notes because you're right. It is an hour. You could watch it a couple times. It isn't the biggest deal in the world. And I just felt like it was the most concise and well, I felt it, you were so in control to explain people why you do, why you hang your, you know, you, you hang the, the steel halfway off the anvil and halfway on, and then you hit it in the middle and why you do a half face blow and how you, you know, how you fix something that's not straight. And I, I just felt like it was a complete command, but it, it, what it does is it, it magnifies the teacher that you are. Well, well, thanks, and, and and it took literally ten years of doing this stuff before I felt confident enough to put this to a video format. I've I've never really been a big fan of like learning by video, and and it and I, I finally kind of got to the point where I was like, I think I, I think I can do this, and I think I can have it be effective and really really worthwhile. So I, that that's that's good feedback. That's great. 
Well, it's a sin- I mean, it's very clear that it, you're very sincere, and the sincerity comes in 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 terms of your your being able. I, I you know, I'm my hot. I'm a. I like the, my favorite hot take is that ni- ni- knives aren't art, and the whole point is is my real reason is because I feel like most people who make knives have a hard time expressing what's happening or what they're doing or what their direction is, and when I when I when I hear how you speak of as a teacher. The command that you have is so compelling, but also is very, it's very sincere, and you feel that in this video. So, 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 oh, so go ahead, sorry. Please, please go ahead. So, uh, art art school kids get roasted quite quite a bit. Uh, people sure. always always tease the the art school kids, but the art school kids can talk about their work and they can talk about why they're doing what they're doing. This and, is the craziest part, and and that is that it means a lot. And it, it really is very effective to to your work and your work going in going in a particular direction that you want it to go. And and if you can talk about your work, it helps you understand your work. So that's a really, really important skill. I can't stress to you enough how much I appreciate you saying that because I roast or I hate I don't know who I hate more. I probably artists because most friends of mine who are I used to do postgraduate art critiques and stuff like that are insufferable, completely insufferable. And one of the things is when I started making knives, I started meeting people. I'm a knife artist. I'm a knife artist. And then what, and I would exp- I would ask them about directions of their work and stuff like that. And I, I why did you do that? And they say because because it, it's cool. And I remember day one of you know art class when we were doing critiques, the art teacher would say to me, hey, if anybody says you're it's cool. I'm throwing you out of here. You can't, that's not a, that's, it's cool. It doesn't cut it. It's not enough. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I'm hoping I want, I want more, I want more knife makers and blacksmiths and bladesmiths and craftsmen and all makers. I mean, this podcast is for makers in general. I can't stress how important it is to be able to express what you're doing. And even a lot of artists, they can't express what they're doing. But one of the things that it tells the viewer is that you have a complete connection to the direction that you're going and why you're doing what you're doing. Yes, and I, I would say that the best knife makers do that. I would say that most of the top tier professional craftspeople that that I that I deal with do all that stuff. They take that stuff seriously. I I, I mean I'm I mean it's for you for me to talk to you. I mean you you I feel it when I hear you when I watch your video. So let me. I'm going to head back. Head back to the, you, you, Derek's. All of a sudden, the, are the classes starting to when you when you start to do the class and you're starting to offer up classes? Obviously, Facebook is kind of just in the infancy. Social media is kind of hard. How are you starting to get? Your, how are you, the students starting to come in? So the classes are doing just okay. Back then, we we were sharing sharing a, a room with the welders. So so it was it was split right down the middle like half half of it was blacksmithing and bladesmithing and half of it was was welding and we had a smaller space so it was only six students so you know we would do we would do four students five students for the uh, for, for for the blade classes but really you know it did okay but it it wasn't really that great and back then you did the traditional marketing thing you did you did mailings uh a banna hammers blow all that stuff uh, you would right. advertise in 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 tra- trade magazines and, and stuff like that. So that that was that that was kind of your your option. And and really, it, it's tough to imagine now. But everyone really thought that bladesmithing 
the, the blacksmithing was weird for the most part, and bladesmithing was even weirder. That was even like further removed. So there really? wasn't really like a cultural reference point that that your average person would think, "Gee, I I want to do this." Uh, it was it was a real a real struggle to find like someone off the street and be like, "You know, you should you should give this a try." See, that surprises me because I remember how hard it was to get people to take here learn how to forge an S hook. Like I, I felt like. I felt like there, I always felt like, you know, most of the teachers who had their classes, I mean, we had the same students. I mean, Mike Cataldo, I was been taking classes at the Center for Mental Arts. So I would have been going there. He was like a, he was a lifer. Mike, yeah. Mike Cataldo is a lifer. I love him. And I love him. He's great. Dude, un- we used to, he used to come to the classes and we would have such fun. And I'll remember, I'll never forget one of the lead man from, the lead man from, uh, from our shop, his name was John Ledford, one of the greatest blacksmiths I've ever met in my life. Incredible fabricator. We were doing railings with him. And just in terms of like being on a job site, measuring a job site, bringing all the information back to the shop and building these beautiful railings and stuff like that. It was just, I was so fortunate to work for him. And he was also a boxer. His dad was also a, well, uh, a, a blacksmith as well. And, and John loved boxing. And I'll never forget, he, he installed a, a, a speed bag in the shop. And he would get me to learn. He wanted me, I was his, you know, his, like his sous chef. I was his number two guy. So he wanted me to learn how to do it when I was learning how to do it. And I'll never forget the day. I love Mike. And, and he's listening to this. Mike, I love you. He, <laughs> I'll never forget. We were, we were, I don't know, he was having lunch or something. He walks up to the speed bag. And, and he's a professional fighter. He was, a, I don't know if you know this, but he was a cage fighter. He was an amateur cage fighter in, wow. in Albany. I did not know that. And he comes up to the speed bag. He hits it once and he starts rolling his fists like you see in the cartoons. Yeah. You know, where like Bluto is like, you know, you know, and he hits it once and we're sitting there just like, God damn, Mike Cataldo is the greatest. I'll never forget watching him just try to like thinking that you hit it once and then you just kind of like mixer, you know, like a, like a standing mixer. You, you like start wheeling your hands around. <laughs> it's going to like automatically do the like the, the back and forth. But he was, I mean, he was just such an incredible kid. He's such an incredible young man. I mean, a kid, I mean, he's a young man, he's as old as I am. Um, was he getting to? But I mean, I always felt like the... I always thought like oh, you got to have a little pizzazz in some of these classes. So it's surprising me. It surprises me that the bladesmithing classes were considered on the weirder side. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. That was that. That was definitely. You know, it, it seemed that that the general public thought that blacksmithing was was shoeing horses and, and bladesmithing right. was like you, you don't make knives. Knives are made in a factory. Nobody makes knives. And and a lot of that is is my exposure because of course if you were in Arkansas at this point it was a different a different story there was there, there's a cultural connection to it and and there were there were knife makers everywhere in that in that in that part of the world so it 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 it, it, it might have been a regional thing as well. Hmm. How do you think at the time? I mean, as the you know, it's it's obviously growing and exp- and. It's it's the, the school's growing and you're you're doing more and you're forging more and you're teaching more. How has it changed the work that you were doing before you started to kind of like the midway point? Where were you? What were your focuses? Where did you change in terms of the focus of your work? Well, I would say the biggest change in the focus of my work would be when I started. It is unrelated to the outside influences of this of this whole thing being. In in the public eye, uh, what what's driven my my work? I mean, I I, I think my teaching and in my work, they're they're really pretty different. 
because the way I the way I teach knife making, you can't you can't teach knife making the way that you actually make knives because oh. you, you the, the the skills that you already possess are something that people are trying to learn. So so if you are uh, if you were really just just running right through stuff when you're doing like production style, like when I do when I do like like 10, 10, 10, 10 chefs knives at once, the way I, I plow through that, a student's not going to be able to pick up on the nuance there. So as far as my process goes, it, it's a different process for teaching versus a, a, a process for what I'm for what I'm doing for for production. But the the biggest change in in my work is when I started doing craft shows and I started getting involved in the fine craft world. That was really the big the big thing that got me. Uh, thinking more of a more 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 production minded, really focusing on my design, uh, in in pushing my my fit and finish to that to that next level, kind of working on all those things at once. That's see, because you just I mean you just this past weekend you were at a crafts fair, so you got involved with the crafts fairs very early on. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it was it was probably it was eight years ago that that I started doing my first craft craft shows and. In Maine, we're we're really lucky here. In Maine, there there's someone practicing every black art craft that's like near death somewhere in Maine. Is someone is doing it, and and there's naturally this appreciation for 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 uh, for fine art and fine craft. And it's really valued. It's really valued. And also, Maine has has a lot of uh, has has uh, has has rich people who who like to buy the stuff. So right. that's really that's the big sure. thing. So the 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 craft world really opened up a new a new a new frontier for me. And where did how did you kind of push towards? I mean, your work your work in general is so varied. Like I, I kind of almost separate some of your things out. Like I, you know, between the chef knives and then your classic. I mean, I say classic with respect. Your classic kind of hunter and hunting knives, and then you have these Asian-inspired tantos, and and we got to get into the whole gaijinto thing. I think it's I think it's hilarious. I, I, you have a very great. I feel like you have a exceptional sense of humor. When we talk about all that work, especially, and I have a whole big thing about your you know your joinery knives. What kind of when you were headed towards doing these craft shows? And thinking about like I know back in the day you were very interested in tactical stuff. What pushed your direction in terms of culinary knives? Well, a lot of it is I saw that there was no one making kitchen knives when when I when I first started thinking about making kitchen knives, there wasn't anyone else doing it. Uh, there was really just uh, um, oh my god, I don't even know why I can't think of his name right now. He's like the most famous kitchen knife maker in the world. It's just not Bob Kramer. Bob Kramer is Bob Kramer. That, that that was the name that everyone that everyone that was in the knives knew. It was Bob Kramer and Murray Carter, and those were the two guys who made kitchen knives. And I think not a lot of knife people in the knife world did a lot of cooking. And I was lucky enough to be at at the at the uh, the the, uh, the the Freeport Knife Company, uh, Casco Bay Cutlery, and I was inspired by the kitchen knives that I sold there. And I kind of put it together, and I saw like the the juggernaut that is the gourmet industry just 
just rising and rising and just it's like I gotta get I gotta get a piece of this. I have to I have to be a part of this. And I I love to cook. Yeah, I cook. I cook every day, and that also helps because I I knew what a kitchen knife should kind of do. And, and I, I was able to get so much feedback from that. So the kitchen knife thing is, is in, in the craft show thing happened at the same time. And that's when I started, I started ruining kitchen knives. Well, that's funny that you, that's funny you say that, ruining them. I, I, I think that the interesting thing is, you know, especially because Blade was last week. And um, I, I, when you, you know, talk to people who have, you know, exhibited at Blade, you know, I met you at Blade Show a couple of years ago. And the, it's interesting because when you're looking at, your your the product that you're making and the customers that you're looking at i could imagine that the crafts fair are filled with people looking for culinary knives and not you know bally songs so yeah it, it's it's culinary knives and i saw the writing on the wall that people would actually buy them and that people would see the value in spending what, what looks like an awful lot of money on 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 something like that and, and, and my my best customers have been people that did not even know that a such thing uh, as a custom knife existed until they saw my booth at the craft show. Had no idea that custom knives were a thing until they saw they saw my knives and and huh. they found them to be appealing and then they took them home and then they used them and they were like, wow, this this thing actually works really really well. Yeah, and and those have been my my best customers. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I, I think it's almost sometimes I've always felt like some of these knives could become fetish items as opposed to being something that you would actually use. I love the fact that you kind of target a different audience than the, the, the and I don't think that I think that that's one of the things that a lot of knife makers don't do is they don't target the right audience. Like the Blade Show thing, I always used to say that it's almost like selling hamburgers at a hamburger convention. You know, it's like, and how many people, I mean, it, it always made me very anxious when I would go because you'd meet these young guys and they're trying to move the stuff and it's Friday and it's not going so well. Maybe Saturday's not going so well and then Sunday you feel under pressure. I would think that like the clientele that comes to these kinds of events like, you know, craft shows or whatever food events are, are you know, ripe, ripe to get a, you know, a tasty knife. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, I was I was kind of turned off by, by, by knife shows at first because it, it just seemed like a bunch of a bunch of knife makers walking around and kind of looking at your work and be like, my stuff's better than that. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it was, a the, the collectors were looking for either stuff that they could flip or only big name, big name stuff. And, and I was really turned off by that when I first started going to knife shows and, and I was thinking, man, there's, there's, there, there's, there's gotta be a better way. Well, so, so, you know, your work itself is so, embracing of being of, 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 I th- embraces the blacksmithing quality to the knife making and one of the things I noticed and this is just you know what I notice is when you're forging especially how you're forging the forge scale isn't really the most that I notice in regards to your the uh, the uh, the the part that's the most forged when I was back at the Center for Mental Arts, one time I was talking to John, and we, we didn't know, at the time, we didn't know anything about knives. We didn't know anything about Damascus. We were just doing railings and stuff like that, and teachers would come in, but there was no knife making. And I was, we were talking to him one day, and we were doing, we were doing um, power hammer leaves for a railing. 
and we were just talking about like how you forge when you're forging he would have two hammers going one was a set of combo dies and one was some you know some crowning dies some fullering dies and he was showing me how to point and then make the neck and then spread everything out from the inside and don't touch the sides and i was just saying and he said to me oh this is how you make a knife and i said what are you talking about he's like yeah power hammer leaf makes a knife and then he showed me, he just basically says, hey, you just don't do a both. It's not like you don't make it like a spade. You just do it on one side, and then you're, you're moving the material from the middle, and then you're moving it down. And when I look at your work, especially after watching the video, I notice that there's a lot of blacksmithing techniques that you have incorporated in your work, especially in the handle. The handle has these swells that you where you're forging when you're explaining how you can make it you know when you're finishing the you're finishing the handle you can actually when you forge in the middle you swell the inside the the bottom and the top of the handle and i notice when i look at the profiles of your knives you have that swell not just on the bottom but slightly on the top that would be really hard to replicate if you just kind of like stock removal that shape out. You know, it's not like you just kind of run it down the plat and then you get a flat, you know, you give a flatter radius. You have this swell that is, to me, is part of the, this very subtle part of blacksmithing that I see in your work. Well, well, I can tell you right now, the big secret in where I developed that style was forging 18th century cooking tools like tasting spoons and forks and stuff like that it's all it's a direct a direct comparison well well, tell me about that when did you do that oh well uh in this this was the the epiphany that i had about forging chef's knives thin enough because i could could never get them thin enough i could never get them thin enough and this is when i was first started making making knives and I, I took a class with uh with Jay, Jay Close who uh was uh was a colonial Williamsburg uh journeyman smith under Peter Ross and he is the best educator that I've ever had uh as far as blacksmithing goes easily and we were making tasting spoons and and we started off with this with this thick piece of steel and we wound up with this absolutely gigantic tasting spoon with a with a big bowl and this beautiful tapered handle and and all these like all these like swells and straight lines and I was like why don't I just do this for kitchen knives and the the, the setup is very very similar so that was that that was that was where that all came from well you see it and I think that especially now I, I, I you know I you see people using you know just making hammered texture and that's to to give the the illusion and that it's been forged i see your work more as the hammer moves the material from the middle to make the outside profiles like i see a lot more of that yeah and also i uh and and i almost hate to say this but it actually the the forge finish thing kind of came backwards from people not believing that my stuff was like forged to shape like when I did a craft show and I had these bright, shiny, clean knives and I'm like, well, I forged these. And like, they look at them and they're like, uh-huh. Like they don't understand, like people didn't understand the work and the process that went into it. And I started leaving forge finish on stuff and all of it just started selling like crazy. And I, so I, I, it actually came around backwards for me wanting to do a good forge finish to prove that it was forged and it was the blacksmithing technique that got me all the way back around to actually getting good at it. What do you, why do you think that is? Because I just know that, you know, most of, I mean, my customers are like, 
you know, the, maybe they're first-time knife buyers. And when I started to to do the you know forged knives, a lot of them were uncomfortable with it because they felt like oh, this is like a caveman stuff. This isn't like I, I'm used to like my you know my Wusthof knife or, or or something that's shiny. It looks like my refrigerator door. You know, I, I'm, I'm interested to know why you think that is that people started to kind of like enjoy the trend of these forged finished knives. You know, I I think that people just connect to it in the sense that they can tell how it was made hmm. because a, to, to the to the layperson to see a shiny knife it it kind of looks like it was just kind of pooped out of a machine and and not not that I'm saying that like making you know clean knives is bad. I I actually I I I would recommend that everyone make way you know make a bunch of clean knives before they start doing for, forge finish knives. I I always recommend that. Uh, but if you have the evidence of manufacture in the knife and you make it look different than what people are used to seeing, that that sort of dissonance is what gets people excited about it. Yeah, it's almost like. Uh... What's that expression? There's like a in the Japanese. It's a wabi sabi or something like that. You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah. It's it's the it's the perfect imperfect. Is that what it is? Yeah. 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 It is. It seems it see it seems like there is that kind of like there's almost like you're with the with the forge finish to the forge to shape and stuff like that. You're giving this degree of a little bit of spontaneity, the tiniest bit, because we know that knife making isn't spontaneous. Like there is like blacksmithing. I, I try to tell people it's not spontaneous. And when you're experimenting sometimes is like, it's just like you're playing. And, and I think that having that discipline to kind of create something that looks like it was just a little bit, you know, a little bit of spontaneity kind of gives it that, that, Wabi sabi. I'm so embarrassed that I even said that. <laughs> well, know, also, like, also forging stuff's fun. You know, forging stuff really is. close is like super fun, and it looks cool, and it's less to finish. And and uh, and on on carbon steel knives, which which is kind of you know what I'm known for. I would get people at shows coming up to me and be like, "Are these the good kind that rust?" And I'm like, "Yes, these are the good kind that rust." And and that's what people kind of associate. Like they they kind of see the forge finish and see that it's old timey, and they think about those those great knives that that uh, that their that their 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 Mima had that always seemed to be super sharp and that would turn black, you know. So so it kind of there there's this sort of historical connection too that people that people kind of understand. That answer that the, the person said is this the good kind that rusts? That's like this adventurous ignorance that I love. Oh, I, I mean, love it. That's I mean that's like you know because it's better that someone says something like that than they know everything about it and then they don't I mean then they you know they they're pretending almost you know using buzzwords and stuff like that I, I there is something to be said about that you know that ability to just that you know adventure some ignorance I love it I and, love it and I just love I just love talking to people that that don't know anything about it but but think it's cool and just just have a little interest like those those are the people I think I like talking about knives the most with. But you also have an experience. I mean, 15 years old, you're doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you have – and I can also imagine, like, my growing up, my dad we used to do the farmer's markets, and he used to drag me to them, and I hated him. I hated <laughs> I hated them. I hated them more than anything else because it, my dad was a winemaker, and we would – people would come up, and they would want to taste the wine, and they'd say the same stupid things all the time, and it was like I had to say the same stuff. I hated it. I hated it. I resented him taking me. I didn't like it. But for <laughs> you, you have this experience – 
talking to people to make those sales at uh, Casco Bay Cutlery. And now all of a sudden it's just like, it's almost like when you do these crafts fairs, you like have to be channeling a little bit of that 15 year old Nick Rossi. Oh, a hundred percent. And and I, to this day, the, the joy I get from learning new things is is just is just amazing. I love going to craft shows and asking stupid questions about stuff that I don't know about. It's one of my favorite things to do, uh, and ta- talking to people who like make things and do stuff and asking dumb questions and, and learning about it. You know, it br- it brings me a lot of joy, and I like to be able to provide that joy. I can imagine. I can imagine that you. It's almost like because the people at these craft fairs aren't knife makers and they're not coming up with their chest puff chest puffed out a little bit and they're gonna you know ask you your rock well and you're gonna ask you you know you're gonna get more kind of real sincere user questions as opposed to these kind of like you know like trying to trick you questions yeah yeah and and, and a lot of people get upset when when they say when, when when someone says like wow this seems really expensive and i love when people come up to me and, and say wow this seems really expensive how can a knife be so so expensive and th- those are the questions that that i like the most you know i you should be totally prepared to to explain that in a patient kind way you know to to, to people it's it's uh the, that's that, that's my favorite you you like to turn people. You I like love to it. turn them around. I just Turning love it. around is your move. It is. See, I, love I, it. I, I I know that the whole sales thing for you was such a huge part of the person that you are because you're looking because I mean I remember I used to make these giant fishing lures and the town I was in had wanted me to do they had a holiday fair and they wanted me to make an installation. So I did this installation of like 20 of these giant fishing lures and they're sculptures clearly. They're not I mean they're like, you know, each one's like 2 2 feet to 6 feet long. Yeah, I know that they're awesome. Used. I appreciate it. And this woman came over in on a rascal and she was a very older woman and she had like a watch cap on and she pointed to one and she said, how much is that? And I said, oh, that one's $200. And she goes, $200? I never pay that much for bait and turned around and like left. I never pay that much for bait. I thought it was the greatest thing. Of, I'll never forget that old, that old bat. She, I love she it. was totally, and there was no turning her <laughs> around. I mean, she just, as soon as I, she, as soon as she lit, lit me up, she just kind of turned around and, you know, left. But I, I think that there is something to be said. There's something to be said about the fact that you do like to turn people. And I would imagine that that also, you have that same feeling when you're teaching people because you are exposing a lot of your students to something very brand new. I mean, I would imagine that most of the people that you are teaching or at the New England School of Metalwork, or I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing some private, you're going to be doing some private classes at your shop now, you are teaching them, you are showing them something that they've never seen before. These are not people most likely who are, you're going to, obviously you're going to have the Jordan Lamotes and you're going to have the, you know, the guys who are going to, you know, who want to be, your journeyman Smith and master bladesmiths, but you might have, I would imagine you have a lot of guys who are just like, you know what? It would be fun to make my own knife. Uh, yeah. So the, being yeah. able to, Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, absolutely. Uh, in, in those are the students that I enjoy the most, uh, it, it, you know, just, just like those sort of like, like elemental questions, those, those, those students that, that even that have no experience at all are, are often really great. They're great to have. They're a real pleasure. Well, there's no pressure on them. Yeah. Like the pressure, the pressure of, you know, they want to bring something home and there, it's not the pressure of, I have to make this class pay for itself. Like this is, this class is meant to further my knife making so I can be a better knife maker, a better business person, as opposed to these people who are there to have a good time. They're there to have a good time and they're there to bring something home and have a good time. Not necessarily to become professional blacksmiths or bladesmiths. 
Yeah, and there, there's no there, there's no ego there. There's no right. expectation like, wow, you know, how how am I doing compared to everyone else in the class? Like, you yeah. know, there's no you know like sort of thoughts like, am am I really good? They're just they're just they're just there to party. But there's there is it's hard for people, and I think this has probably a lot to do with watching you know learning watching YouTube videos or whatever. I think that there's a lot of people who have this idea, their expectations of what they're supposed to be doing as opposed to enjoying the moment and enjoying the the journey. It's taken me a long time to become comfortable with the idea that I'm happy on this journey and I don't need need a checkpoint in terms of my personal enlightenment as a blacksmith or a sculptor or a bladesmith or a knife maker. I'm like... I'm finally, and I think it, I literally believe it has to do with my age, but I'm really interested in the moment as opposed to like the expectation. And I would imagine that there are two styles of students where it's like, all right, I got to become a blacksmith now, or I'm just having a good time and I'm learning as I go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just coming around to avoid that and just have a good time and learning as you go. It, it takes, it takes a while. I am 100% with you there. I know just what you're talking yeah. about. Well, there's just too much. There's too. We've obviously, you know, Amazon has given everybody the idea that things are like spit out in, you know, Amazon Prime Time. So it's like you get everything very quickly, and they're not aware that skills and things are are. It just it's it, it's people are not ready for things to take a t- take time. Yeah. Back to back to your work. You have such. I feel like you have such a good sense of humor. And part of that is your Japanese style knives. I don't know if that's the right way to the Japanese inspire Japanese style. I don't forgive me if I'm, you know, I don't know how you would refer to them. It inspired um, what we'll say. You have you do these beautiful knives and then you have I don't know if you had the touch marks made or you're carving the touch marks in. And one of the things you have is you refer to them as a gaijinto where it's like I don't know if you have a touch marker. Can you explain that whole thing? I love it. Yeah, so uh Gaijinto is 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 foreigner knife or or bar, like barbarian knife, you know, uh outsider knife. Those are kind of kind of the 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 idea of that and and it's a it's a it's a it's a stamp I have and I stamp it on my Japanese style knives. And so when when I first started, I thought I wanted to make traditional Japanese knives and in, in swords. And that was really my my main goal when when I started. And and as I I sort of learned more about the the the, the discipline and and toil and sacrifice that it takes to that it would take for me to make really what would be like a subpar traditional Japanese piece. Uh, the like the the best I could possibly do would be like a studious copy. You know, I realized that 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 is as good as I could get if I put my entire life into one aspect of 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 traditional Japanese bladesmithing. And I realized that it just wasn't for me. And so I like to stamp my Americanized Japanese knives with that just as as a marker so people know that it is not traditional work. And and I like to I like to reference that and tell people to look at real Japanese swords, uh, yeah, real antiques that, that, that's, that's, that's the real deal. I'm trying to get people to, to appreciate what I'm doing with sort of these like Ninja Turtle esque, you know, Japanese inspired pieces, which 
are sort of like from my childhood, you right. know, and 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 uh, and, and I I, I want to reference the the real work. I want I want people to to look at that as well, as well as appreciate the the sort of I don't know simulacra that I'm that, that I'm creating. But you, but did you make that word up? No, that's a that that's a. I mean, oh, it well, is. it's it's two it's two words that that I mean, it, it's real it's real Japanese. I had uh, yeah. I don't know if you know uh, Alex Bazes, but uh, he is uh, he's a really good uh, Japanese style knife maker who lived in in, in Kyoto, um, and uh, and he did the translation for me. Huh? Because I, I always thought that Gaijin Gaijin was more like you know like foreign devil. You know, I always yeah. thought I, I think yeah. I read that in like some Wolverine comic back when yeah. I was a kid or something like that. So I, I just I just love the I, I just felt like it was just this very tongue in cheek move to be like let's not take ourselves so seriously. This is obviously I'm not wearing you know I'm not wearing like I'm not you know this isn't like the solstice and I'm not waiting for I'm not waiting for some star to fly by and I'm like you know using my you know, my ancestors powers to make this happen. I, I I always felt like you have a real sense of humor in terms of how you see your own work. Yeah, you know, I, I I try not to take it too seriously and and that's a that that's that's the mark of me not taking myself too seriously. Well, clearly, but I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's hilarious. I, I think it's funny because there are so many knife makers who do take everything a little bit too seriously. So it's nice to, I've always felt like you've had this, this bit of, uh, you know, a sense of humor and a little bit of uh, subversiveness. If you take that as a compliment, I hope yeah. you would take that as a compliment I, Say that I, in the best possible way. I, I do. And so in, 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 uh, in the way, the way I always thought about it in, in my, in, in my former life, uh, I, I operated a, a, a dressage barn, a, a, ho- a horse barn. And and we would have these these uh, the, these dressage instructors, these very high end horse horse instructors that 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 would come in, and everyone just like groveled and scraped at their feet, and they would just come in and treat everyone just like just like dog shit, and and everyone just bowed and scraped, and then you'd see that lady like like in the grocery store, and she's just like some some, some grumpy lady with like with like Nazi boots on. And, and outside of that context, you know, they're they're nobody. So so yeah. you you see uh, you see these knife makers that have their 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 their, their chests puffed out and see themselves as like you know big time real deal artists, and it's kind of like oh man, you know, just you know, just uh, don't uh, don't take yourself too seriously. And with that said, I might say, I might say one of my favorite moments. I'm not going to give it away in your video, and I want everybody listening to this to get the video from go to nickrossyknives.com. Uh, go get the video. You do a wiener joke, which I I'm not going to say when, I'm not going to say how, I'm not going to even say <laughs> what you say, but it was such a fun part of that video. I was just like. Yeah, because I got the I got I bought the video like five o'clock in the morning or something like stupid like that, and I'm sitting around watching it, and I'm just like, "All right, wiener joke." I thought it was such a clever thing to do. Yep, yep. I'm a and fan. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't want to give away, but uh, there, there, there were there, there were too many giggles when I when I did the class in person that I had to just call it out. So yeah. Oh, dude, you just I mean, it was perfect. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't it was perfect. Just the way you cut the you know, you said the line in the way you cut the thing, <laughs> walked away from the anvil. It was the perfect. I was just like, God damn it. I hope there's gonna be more of this. So if on the future videos, I you know, please, please, you know, fart jokes, wiener jokes. You have a fan over here and I'm, I'm sure you will have more fans in general. Noted. All right, good. So the next thing I really wanted to discuss was there's one thing that I just I love about your work is you have this I kind of broke down there's these four knives that you posted and I'm sure that there are more 
these traditional joinery knives. The the one the first one I saw was a Damascus joinery knife. Uh, I have it right here. Uh, it was a traditional. Jo- actually, this is the traditional joinery knife number two, and it was t- it was two pieces of Damascus. You forged the tang out, and then you riveted the back. So it's. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. And I, what started you to think that? Because I mean, in my opinion, I'm thinking, God, it's so great. You don't have to wait for glue to dry. You can do these knives without having to. You don't have to wait for wood. There's no carving. There's no sanding. He's just going to do some traditional forging, for blacksmith joinery knives. Tell me how you started to do these. Well, I, I, I don't know where the idea came from. I, I think, I think basically it might have been just trying to. One up Lynn Ray. I think that yeah. might have been my uh, my my kind of my kind of friendly uh, friendly competition thing to kind of kind of push the boundaries of 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 a forged knife. Um, and Lynn, Lynn and I are good friends, by the way. Of course. Um, uh, and and that's kind of where it started. And they actually take quite a bit longer to make than even a complicated other knife. Uh, so they uh, they they were a real challenge. And it all started. I I just sat down and I drew probably. I drew probably 10 of them in, and, and, uh, in that really, I was like, wow, I, I've got all these ideas. So I've, I've only, I've only tapped into a few of them. I've got, I've got a whole sketch pad full of them. So I, I believe it. And it, it would be, it would be, you know, obviously there are, you do, you can't, you can't not think of those, you know, blacksmith knives without, you know, thinking about Lynn Ray's x-ray knife, which is just like, I mean, he is, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's a genius. I, I, the, yeah. the, the concept that he's created with all his different variations, and he once showed me not too long ago, he'd done one where the tang was in the middle and then the handle kind of was a bar that went all the way around. And his his concept behind this is like, it's so beautiful and so simple and so elegant. And it isn't like, it doesn't fit like a traditional colonial style of blacksmithing. It seems like he's transcended this concept of creating something that is influenced and approachable to, in the 21st century. Yeah, it, it's 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 elevated. It is definitely elevated. Completely. And and I've uh I've had a chance to take Lynn's X-ray workshop and it was amazing as you might expect. So he's he's a, he's a great instructor and a great guy. It's super fun. But when I look at his x-ray knife and I look at all your joinery knives, I don't really see I don't really see a connection. Like I see, so to speak, that's very funny. Like the if the other the one of the other joinery knives, which was just I mean, it's just uh, it shows your appreciation for uh, Edgar Brandt and you know, uh, Nouveau design, uh, Art Nouveau, Art Deco. You did this Edgar Brandt knife where the top tang was uh, like a fiddlehead scroll, and then the middle one was a copper scroll, and then the final one in on the inside, the the smallest towards the bottom of the knife was like a bronze. Uh, bronze scroll and you had this collar around it and it was so elegant in terms of the 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 design but you really see that connection and i really feel like you're i feel like you're being in the new england school of metalwork and working with people like uh, peter ross and being involved your blacksmithing is just completely this is a celebration of blacksmithing in general 
Yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely, and 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 stuff like that. I I was really just looking for an excuse to do some 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 deco some deco ironwork, and knives are kind of what I know, and I just kind of smashed the two together, and that was that was what that was what I came up with. That you know, I have always felt like Art Nouveau and Art Deco were really suited to the you know the blacksmith Samuel Yellen really kind of got involved with that whole idea of you know these undulating lines but then you know deco is a little bit more kind of angular as opposed to the you know the tenderly stuff from art nouveau i see a more of when i see the other another one you did i hope you don't mind me kind of going through all your stuff like a no, no. maniac there's another one you did where it's a damascus knife and then you have the inside of the handle is bra is bronze and then you have these small balls in the middle Almost like spacers, like you would do in a rail. In a railing, you'd have the squished ball ra- um, spacer. It's just, I love it because you see the contrast between the Damascus and the bronze. The the, the balls have a kind of almost like they're almost hinting towards being rivets in a in normal handle. And then the profile is this very elegant knife with the traditional uh, with the traditional joinery, but also. You're forging your angles. Your angles are like crisp 90s, and it is very like blacksmith, but like more art deco and just really kind of high level fabrication. Yeah, and and thank you. And and if you leave me alone and say Nick, like you know, you don't have to worry about bills and stuff like that. That's probably like what I what I would what I would do if left if left to my own devices. Really. Yeah, probably those. I just do those in like integral chef's knives, and that—that's. I think that's that's it. Why do you think that is? Oh man, I don't know. I I uh, I, I don't know. Just I just have a great time doing it. Uh, it just yeah. it just there's just something something appealing to me about it, and and I I also like taking architectural influence and applying it because there's so much inspiration out there. There's twenty yeah. lifetimes of of inspiration in architecture for for anything so there's there's just so many ideas so many things that i want to do i I mean and then the last one just is almost like it's it's a forged knife and then the the underside of the handle has this big rivet it's it's like a bronze it's a bronze bottom and then there's like a wide piece of bronze before it's a square riveted in the middle so there's space on the on the pommel of the knife and there's just such a there's such a joyfulness in it, but it's also like when I look at Lynn Ray's work, if there's no Peter Ross, there might not be a Lynn Ray. And and I see that kind of traditional those traditional traditional forging techniques and you're you're using them in your own work and it just seems like you're having a good time. Yeah, you know, I am, and it's nice cuz I already know how to do it. So uh yeah. so that that's also just a just kind of a convenience thing too, but yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like I, I could imagine that that whole idea is just I, I can just imagine that the, when you come up with these things, it's just like this is going to be a lot of work, but it's going to have a real big payoff. But it, it almost feels like as well as you're kind of like every time you do one of these, you're kind of you're looking to new ground. You're you're exploring something completely new for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's always the kind of struggle is 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 like finding something new because you know, there've, there've been a lot of knives made and, and it's fun to kind of push, push the boundaries and just give, give, uh, give people something that, that, that they've, that they've never seen before. And I, I think that there's a lot of room out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. 
what if you could i mean just out of curiosity if you could do something now that you haven't done before what would it be or would you what kind of direction would you like to go into Oh well, folders. Folders are really are are really kind of a, a direction I I want to go in. Uh, in using using uh blacksmithing techniques with with folders and with mechanisms is something that I I uh, I have some I have some ideas brewing. Kind of kind of blurring those lines. I've always felt like folding knives are so much more intimate because they don't need a sheath and you don't have to put them on you know like when you deal with like knives that need to be put on a belt or something like that there is something more of like they're being more of like a tool and when you see something like something you just put in your pocket or now with you know something that maybe it has like a little clip that it clips on your you know the inside of your the outside of your your pocket there is more of an intimacy in terms of that kind of style knife and, I, and i've always loved them. my dad gave me you know swiss army knives when i was a kid and it was like it just rattled around in my pocket. And there is something to that being more of an intimate relationship with the customer. Yeah. And there's, there's a reason why, why they, they, they were so popular for the last 150 years. There, there's something special about, about a mechanism, about a folding knife, about that convenience. And I'd like to be a part of that too. You are, I mean, with your, with your friction folders and uh, the detente knives, I'm not hundred percent sure what a detente is. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's basically, let's see, which I'm trying, I'm trying to think of which ones, uh, that those, those are just sort of like slip joints, but instead of having a spring that holds it open and close, uh, there's, there's a leaf, like, like a liner lock, uh, and, uh, a ball set in, set in the leaf. And that, and that is basically, uh, the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the detent that holds the blade open and closed. So, so yeah, the detent is the bar that kind of goes in. Uh, the detent is is uh, the ball bearing that's set in the leaf that's tensioned that kind of pushes against the blade. And when the blade's closed all the way, the ball falls into uh, a pocket in the blade. And then when you open it up, it, it falls into another pocket. So it just kind of holds it open and holds it closed, sort of like so, sort of like a slip joint. It was uh, j- just a way that that I can have a positive um, sort of. Uh, you know, uh, open and closed feeling without relying on, on just, on just friction. It was just, it was just another idea I had. It, they just seem like that. I mean, I did, I made one slip joint folder. I, I, I bought a book and I followed the plans and it was so fidgety for me. And obviously, obviously the first time you do anything, it's never going to be easy. It just seemed like I, I loved it because I love slip joints. And being a New Yorker, if you're in New York City, you know slip joints are the only thing you're not going to end up in the tombs with. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you if you got even if you have a uh, leather man in your pocket and the and the clip is on your wallet the, or clip is on your pocket, the the police are going to look at it. And if it's a leather man, you're okay. If it's anything else, you might end up in the tomb. So it's one of those things that those slip joint folders are are something that are are so much more. I'm I'm more used to them, but they're just so. They're so tricky. Yeah, they they are. It's uh, it's it's a different a different sort of thing. And I've been playing around with them off and on again for the past the past ten years. And, and folder enthusiasts are are very very picky and they're very choosy. And I mean, of course, you know that you that that's that's that that's what you want. So kind of getting to the point where I I feel confident putting a product out there that that uh, that will will be appealing to those to those customers. It's it's taken a while for me to feel comfortable. 
well, now that you have, now that you've, you have a, in the past couple of years, you've had a new shop, you built your new shop and you're, you're are you, are you going to start to do more teaching classes there or are you going to be, you doing know, production I'm, stuff? I'm not sure really what I'm going to do. I'm kind of, I'm kind of up in the air about that. There's uh as far as like offering lessons out of the shop, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. If I'm if I'm gonna do that, I'm 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 pretty happy either going to uh, going to other people's shops and doing doing private lessons or going to go, going to craft schools at the moment, and and mostly that that kind of comes from like my my shop isn't very big and I kind of have it set up for 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 production work that I I really do I, I have to do so we'll we'll kind of see how that how, how that fleshes out I I haven't quite made made a decision on that. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. for a class is so much. People don't realize the moving stuff around and the cleaning the shop and then changing stuff out and having the stuff you need. And it's so much more prep that you re- that people don't realize. They think, ah, oh, we'll take your class for the weekend and it bingo, bango, bongo. It's not the case. It's so much work. Yeah, yeah. When I was when, when I was at, at the school full time, it, it was a solid eight hours between each class to clean the shop, fix everything that was broken. And and you know and get ready, get get tooled up, get material for for the next class. I mean, it's it's eight to ten hours every time you do that. I remember doing cut lists oh. for classes, and it would take me weeks. It would take me a week to do a cut list for like these two to three week classes. There there there's few things that I that I hate I hate more than than doing cut lists. Yeah. Tell me, you know, just just tell me what it was like when you guys did. I love the fact that you at the center for, at the at the at the New England School of Metalwork, you were doing these battle these battle. Uh, I remember getting uh, messages from uh, Nate Zimmerman and Isaiah Schroeder, and and I was such a huge fan of all all you guys and you know Nick Angers and all that. What was it like doing those like those those battle those battle what did you call them? Tournaments? Uh, it was Battle of the Bladesmiths, and uh, yeah, this was it, it was pre it was pre Forge and Fire, and we didn't come up with it. It, it was a uh, it was a, uh, a a Bert Foster and Jason Knight thing. I think that's that's uh, that was the the evil creation of those two, and and basically the premise is whoever can make the best knife in two hours is the winner, start to finish, and. It was super fun. It was super fun. Uh, I think I'm a I'm a three time battle champion. Uh, so so that was that was a, a great time. Uh, mostly, I I just enjoyed it for all of the shit talking that you get to do. That's really the big the big thing. But um, but but yeah yeah. So so that's that that was the premise. And it turned out to be quite a thing. We we would get quite a quite a crowd for it. It would be quite raucous. I, you know, I was talking to Emiliano about it, and he was talking about how he was just, he was so, he's such a sweet guy. And the way he was talking about it, and he was like, I guess he was in the grinding room or something was wrong. And, and you said, oh, was, you know, oh, you're going to do it like that or something like that. And he's just like, oh, yeah, Nick, I'm, I'm going to do it like that. And it, it just seemed like it was such a very, uh, it seemed like a really great opportunity. You guys are having such a good time. Yeah, it's true. And, and uh, you know, Emiliano is so nice that sometimes he doesn't really know, like, when you're, when you're, when you're messing with him. So I, I really like exploiting that. Well, and just to let you know a little bit of a secret with uh, Forge and Fire, I have put it out there uh, in the universe that if you happen to be in Stanford and things don't go your way on day one, to DM me 
and I do a uh, one-day New York tour where I give an itinerary on how to spend the rest of your time in Connecticut. And I have gotten six, <laughs> six people who didn't, things didn't go well. And I send them on this extraordinary day in the city. And I've gotten, you know, send them to different restaurants and, you know, different places to see. And I feel like that's my, I feel like that's my donation is to kind of like take care of the people who end up in Connecticut for the first time in their lives. You know, they might just decide that, that just going to New York and having a good time might be a better option. I'm telling you, I've gotten six people in the past, this past year, I started talking about it. One of uh, the people I was talking to, Ben Snoor, said that when he lost, he sat in the in the in his hotel room and just drank beer. And I said, why? I'd be surprised that people don't go into New York. And people started reaching out and said, well, what would you do? And, I'm, and I gave a, a itinerary. So I have this, like, underground itinerary for people who things don't go the, their way at Forge and Fire. It's hilarious. And, I mean, I get every day. I, oh, not every day. Like, six times I've had a message saying, I'm in uh, Stanford and... What do you think would be a fun thing to do? And I, no questions asked. And I just, that's all you have to say. It's like the knock on the door. And I send this, you know, this uh, itinerary. It's hilarious. W- would you, would you please send that to me? I will. I'll totally nice. send it to you. It's actually a great day because, you know, I even give, now I have it like printed up and now, not printed up, I have it on digital with hyperlinks and stuff like that. So it's like how you get from the, from Stanford into the city and then I, you know, like all the, you know, nice loop. And it's just, it's, it's funny because, you know, you know, we think about this forge and fire all the time and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to not be asked about it. But the, what I'm interested in is what do you do when things don't go your way? And, and it was like, I don't know. So you're back, you're back in your shop. You got this video. What possessed you to do the video now? Well, basically it, I, I, I wanted to bring this process kind of to the world. And I, I really spent some time thinking about this and I really want people to take a class in person. That's really number one, what I want people to do because that's that's the most joy per dollar that you're going to get. But I've realized that it is it's a huge undertaking for a lot of people in in positions that 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 they're in in their life to to leave wherever they are and take paid time off, uh maybe like away from their, you know, like a a wife and kid uh to 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 go take a class halfway across the country. And, and come back and, and a lot of these people just just won't do it. They, they they just won't do it. So what can I provide that offers the the best equivalent that I can possibly do to to someone traveling and taking a class with me uh, on 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 video? You know what what's what's a, what's the best I can do and and specifically using tools that most people have in their shop. So no 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 heat treat oven, no power hammer, no press. Uh, you know, I was, I'd been making knives for 10 years before I, I met, uh, I, I met someone who owned a power hammer. That, that's a, that was a crazy thing. Uh, so I, I wanted to do something simple, something basic and something that people could replicate in their own simple home shops. The future episodes. Yeah. What are you thinking about? So I think that the, the, the closing of the chef's knife series is going to be two shorter, less expensive videos. Uh, and I think it's going to work out that the, that it's going to be, uh, like normalizing, hardening, well, design, normalizing, hardening, 
grinding, getting ready to put a handle on it, and then one that's going to be uh, finishing and handle shaping. So I think that, that it's going to be two more videos to, to round that out. And then I've got a lot of interest in doing friction folders. So I'm thinking friction folders might be the next the next video. Unbelievable. So do you think, I mean, when, what do you think, I mean, as a, someone who's, you know, gobbled up your first video, you know, as quickly as possible, and I received, uh, if you get, if you guys, if you go to nickrossi.com, nickrossiknives.com, and you buy the virtual bladesmithing educational video, he's also going to send you the templates, the, the physical size templates of the nine-step process to make a chef's knife, which are great. And it is, one of the things that I love about it is I think that a lot of knife makers, they just think that you hit it and it goes in one direction and you don't kind of go backwards and then there's this one moment and there's this one moment it's step four and I'm not going to tell you you guys got to buy the video but it's this moment where you figure out it's not you don't figure out you're explaining the 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 question that on knife talk we get all the time is how you pull the heel down and that's the one blacksmithing question that we get more than anything else is when you're forging a chef knife how do you pull the heel down to 90 like that's and and what i loved about that part for in your video is you explain what people are doing wrong. You explain the reason why they're going a different way. I'm not going to give it anything away, but the explanation of how you go about it, maybe you're moving something around a little bit, got to get the video. When do you think, I mean, when do you think you'll have the, uh, the second video ready? So I wasn't sure if anyone was going to like or buy this at all. So it, it, it turns out that people have, and they do. And I'm like, just totally pumped about that. I'm, I'm totally excited that people are excited. So uh, I'm I'm going to get to work on it uh, as as soon as possible. Uh, I'm actually teaching at the New England School of Metalwork uh, next next week or, the, or tomorrow. Actually, I'll, I'll be I'll be there all all, all, all this week. Um, and then I've I've got to I've got to get to work on it. So I'm hoping I can have. Maybe maybe three weeks, three three or four weeks. I should have uh, the next two videos, which will drop at at the same time. Oh, you're gonna have both in three weeks. You think you're gonna have them done? Four weeks, maybe. I'm thinking. Wow, you're giving you're giving yourself. You're not giving yourself a lot of time. I mean, that like, might that doing, might, it looks like you're the cameraman too. I, I, well, you know what? I've actually got a young a young man, J- Jacob Ward, who is a, a local enthusiast, uh, who is the uh, the the uh, camera operator. So I've got to get I've got to get him back in the shop. So. I, I love the video. I'm a fan. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. And, you know, one of the things that I try to, we, we, we all try to say is we, you know, videos are good and there's no, there's, there is no, there's no, uh, there's no uh, replacement for, for having an instructor and having them see what you're doing and telling you what you're doing wrong. It's almost like I once explained it, like it's like going to a gym and you don't know how to use the machines. It would be good to have a trainer to show you how you're doing things incorrectly or correctly in order for you to go the correct way. What do you tell people who maybe they can't make it to, maybe they can't afford to go to a class or they can't go to a class. What do you think the best way is to learn about this? What do you think the best way is? Well, that's that's kind of uh, an easy one. Uh, struggle, struggle, practice. Uh, get the best information that you possibly can. Whether it's it's a, a video, there's some great YouTube content out there with the uh, with the the New England School of Metalwork. There's some you know that that that's always a mixed bag. But go into the shop, schedule some time where you can go into the shop 
and 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 take it seriously. And uh, I mean, you know, you don't want to take yourself seriously, but you want to take your time seriously in the shop. You know, if you can get a few hours alone and work through a projects and also do multiples, so anyone can get lucky once. I would say going into the shop and working on trying to work on like three identical chest knives or three identical hunting knives or whatever whatever you want to make, that's what's going to make you good. And you'll make five of them and and two of them will come out the same and and that will feel like a uh, a, a huge a huge step forward and that is how you is how you build skill. Just that 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 discipline. And a lot of it's not really all that fun, and and it's it is toil, it is work, but it's working towards something. So that's that's really the big thing. When I look at your entire body of work and I look at your history, I can't help but think that there's a relationship from where you started, as a, at the you know Casco Bay Cutlery, and the with the Dillman family, and 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 heading towards. This kind of this whole I, I just I think that with this podcast, I try not to talk about like router bits and tower hammers and the things that you have. I'm far more interested in people and who they are and how they became who they are. And it feels like the the viewers end up having more of a connection because it's it's not just about like all the tools I have. And I what I see with you is and I've known about you for, from so many people and talking to Ashley Childs and Steve Schwarzer and, and just people who have come through your shop. I mean, you've made such a huge impact on the progression for, of people on their road to this victory. And, and I, and if, if nobody else thanks you, I thank you for being out there. I think you, like I said before, you're the gold standard in teaching and I just hope that you never stop. Well, well, th- thanks a lot. It, it really comes from uh, from a place of 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 not having really any any place to turn for for uh, for for you know for guidance or, or specific information and and that that struggle. And I don't want people to struggle like like I did. I want I want it to be easier because it's it's pretty joyful to 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 make a knife and have it come out kind of how you want. You know, I want I want that for people. Guys, I want you to listen to me. Nick Rossi made a great video. You don't even have to be a bladesmith or a blacksmith to enjoy this video. It's really reasonably priced because he will explain to you what is happening. He's explaining things in great detail, why things work, why things don't work. It's not just hit it hard and hit it hot. It's He has very specific ex, ex, uh, reasoning behind the things that he's doing. He's going to make your game better. I learned a ton. I learned a ton just watching it. And I thought, God damn it, Nick, you really figured it out. And you figured out a way to, to, to capture it and to send it to the people in a very, very approachable manner. So go to NickRossiKnives.com and go buy the Virtual Bladesmith educational video. He's also going to send you uh, the templates for the knife, that, uh, that he, the chef knife. And he's going to send you a high-level sticker. I'd love to know who made that sticker because it is excellent. Uh, well, it was uh, my my uh, my uh, graphic my graphic designer Josh made it. Josh did an excellent job. It's a great. It's one of the better stickers I've seen. Go pick it up. Go pick. Uh, go pick up this. Uh, you get two printed uh, tracings of Nick's exclusive nine-step forging process. You get a membership to a private Facebook group where tech support will be offered along with uh, offered by Nick along with exclusive educational opportunities. There's a detailed breakdown of each of the forging steps and techniques that until now were only available via in-person workshop. So NickRossiKnives.com. Go get that video, guys. Go follow Nick. 
Nick Rossi Knives on Instagram. He's also on Facebook. He, he does a lot on Facebook. And I can't thank you enough. I've been waiting for this for a long time, and I really, really appreciate your time, Nick. Well, I had a wonderful time. It was a real pleasure. Well, the pleasure is mine. All right, guys. Next week, we're going to fuck around with owner Kaglar and, and, and Ben Snor. So we'll see you next week, and uh, have a great weekend. Week. Or have whatever you have. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.